Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello and welcome to Compound Interests with me, John Najarian. Folks, uh, every week I get to sit down with somebody uh, who's a luminary in finance, who's a star of stage or screen. And this week, that star was David Hightower. He writes the Hightower Report and its daily commodity research. Um, if you're somebody who's even come this close uh, into any of these areas, grains, livestock, metals, financial, and so forth, soybeans, um, chances are you're familiar at least with the name. And David and I had a wide ranging discussion about all of those topics. And I think in particular, you'll wanna stay tuned for the parts where he talks about silver and gold, because those are things that we trade a lot and that has really put a boost on the portfolio the same way Apple and Tesla have in our equity portfolios. But like I say, David Hightower of HightowerReport.com joins me. Please give it a listen and tell your friends about it. And by the way, give us a five-star rating when you listen to Compound Interests. Good to be here. Now, David, uh, when, when you're out there, I, I've read a lot of what you've been writing about. Um, most recently, I guess, uh, I was reading about soybeans and so forth, probably because a lot of us are talking about that with, uh, uh, you know, whenever we're not talking about the election, we're talking about something with the president and China. And uh, obviously China's been a very significant buyer of pork bellies, of soybeans. They have uh, taken on an obligation, I guess, under the terms of the uh, uh, most recent negotiations with the president and his team, uh, David Navarro and those guys, to basically buy a lot of US goods um, to not necessarily equalize the trade gap but at least to give uh, the president something that he wants very desperately for the farmers, and that is uh, a, a great export spot like China that has an almost insatiable demand for protein. Um, what do you think of where soybeans are now, David, and what would be a prediction from you as far as support and resistance levels going forward? Well, I, you know, I also have, uh, in the last several years, I've done a lot of uh, travel for the U U.S. Soybean Export Council, and we made a lot of trips to China, uh, been over there a lot, and uh, we changed our focus a little bit uh, and tried to focus on South America, uh, uh, to get other clients, you know, with the uh, trade war heating up. And, you know, an agreement and a phase one agreement to buy so much in the way of commodities, uh, you know, I've, I've been going to China for 28 years and they're, they're not going to buy anything that's not uh, the cheapest they can, they can purchase it at. They're going to go where it's cheap. And when it uh, suits their uh, pocketbook, they're, they're going to buy it from the U.S. Um, so recently we've seen the dollar slide aggressively. And so that's increasing uh, the attractiveness of our of our commodities, and and China's been in aggressively. I mean, they uh, it, it would almost seem like they're trying to placate uh, U.S. negotiators on the trade issue because with a lot, a lot of beans and a lot of corn. Uh, but when you look at the soybean market, I mean, uh, we've had crop conditions this year running uh, well above normal, so we had a really good crop. 
Um, but it's important to note that August is the most important month for the uh, development and the yield on the soybeans. Uh, and so when you when you look across, we had the, uh, only 25% of normal rain in Iowa and Indiana uh, in, in, uh, the, in the month of August. Uh, you look through, I think Tom Skilling had uh, earlier this week, uh, June, July, and August uh, had the hottest uh, average temperature ever in the, in the Midwest. So uh, there certainly is, when you have a little bit of uh, moisture shortage, and a lot of heat right in the critical production stage, that's when it, it, it does have an impact on yield. So we've knocked down prices, we deflated them off of the uh, crisis. You know, I, I try to tell people, look at the panic area. The panic area on the charts was, we're gonna lock down the US in early March. And look at where prices were at that time and realize, look, we're, we deflated prices from that point because of macros, not necessarily because of internal fundamentals. So I see uh, November beans as uh, probably made a low and, uh, and a break back down to 928, I think puts you down at that level that's gonna cause more export money to come in for our uh, supply. And you know, you could see a, a valuation increase due to, uh, I, I believe the buyer situation will be uh, at an end, meaning the uncertainty, uh, we're not gonna have the vaccine out there, but the uncertainty and the panic and the fear from that I think will be done before the end of October, three uh, late stage uh, vaccines. And again, it's a perception of anxiety. So if you reflate uh, sentiment at the same time that you notch down the size of the crop, you know, you could see 1090, uh, maybe even $11 beans. Well, um, from that uh, March low in beans, beans were beneath 830, I think in March, maybe around 820 or so. Um, and now here they are in the 950s. Uh, so like you say, uh, this has been a pretty much uh, from the lower left to the upper right graph that has just gone like this, David. Right. Um, and obviously China's a big part of that. Um, how, is, there any, uh, uh, is there anything going on down in Brazil, which is of course a huge producer of beans. Is there anything going on down there that would cause them not to fill some of this demand um, or are they just selling right along with us you know sale for sale over to uh, China sort of like when we had a not an embargo but when we had them buying beans from us only to ship them over to China well I mean there are uh, there are some quality differences uh, mm -hmm. that uh, can make a difference and when you have prices this low some food makers will decide hey why not get the higher quality stuff when the cost is uh, relatively small, uh, differential, but they've also sold a lot of theirs forward. Um, but, but an even bigger impact uh, is the fact that uh, Indonesia and Malaysia have moved forward to enforce a mandate uh, to utilize five and 10% of their domestic palm production uh, in biodiesel. And when you look at the world oil, edible oil market, you see that uh, first of all, palm is seven times the productive capacity as bean oil, cottonseed oil, linseed oil, all the other edible oils combined. So if you take a small amount of cut out of the palm oil supply available to the world and in Indonesia and Malaysia basically export all of what they produce. So you create a, uh, a little bit of a shortage in, in uh, palm oil that eats up a lot of soybean oil and the, the bean oil market's been leading and pulling up uh, the soybean market. So 
it's not just a function of what the ending stocks will be in soybeans, but the product uh, prices are starting to go up also. Now, David, uh, uh, I, I know that you're an analyst and a technician and so forth, um, but could I ask you what you think the impact is going to be on uh, U.S. consumption? Because obviously um, we're back to some of the recent highs or very close to it for soybeans. Is this going to have an impact on some of the stuffs that we buy? Everything from some of the animals that we feed soybeans to, to some of us uh, that are consuming beans in one way or another. Well, the, the poultry production uh, and the profitability in the livestock areas also come up. Mm -hmm. um, and you, uh, some of that was the result of just some short-term hoarding that took place. So some of the producers are benefiting from that so that they can absorb a higher input costs to that equation. So mm -hmm. uh, I'm not sure uh, with many commodities, only five, 10% of the total product cost. I don't know if that's going to inflate uh, in, because we do have other supplies available beans. So I don't know if it's going to transmission into higher food prices. Now, uh, one of the things I'd love to get across to the listeners and viewers, David, is um, what your background is, how you got started um, in doing this. Because, uh, you know, to have a 30 plus year career, which you've had, um, and to have the Hightower Report be so um, so much at the forefront of a lot of these uh, letters that are out there, whether they're daily and weekly or monthly subscriptions and things like that. You guys have one of the best names in the business. How did you get started? Were you working for, for a, a, a man or a woman that really um, sort of took you along as you were making your entry into this business? Or how did you get started in futures and in particular in these commodities? Well, I was extremely fortunate, and uh, I was uh, maybe the last of the of the old style uh, CM, uh, CBOT uh, traders from the pit. Um, I started in the bond pit. I was only down there a month. Um, I started doing uh, research programming for the uh, largest research department uh, in the futures business at that time. Uh, my, uh, I, within two years, I became the assistant director of research. Uh, then I became the director of research, and I had about 40 analysts uh, underneath me. So I had a huge budget uh, and, and was in the process of automating the data. Uh, but more importantly, uh, being in the board of trade and uh, being in with the, uh, some of these the market uh, uh, gurus and the uh, the, the big name guys. I mean, uh, we had bond traders uh, uh, trading 3,000 lots of bonds, and I was, a, I was invited uh, to the morning meeting, and they called it the war room. And, uh, you know, there'd be 20 or 30 guys that at that time had been there at the, in the building for 50 years. Um, and so I listened a lot in the beginning. Um, and when you offered your opinion, uh, they would attack you. And if you didn't have the fundamental knowledge and backing of that opinion, you don't do the research after you do the trade. You do the, uh, you do the research before the trade. And so uh, I, I was fortunate. I, I had a lot of uh, interaction with these guys and they, a lot of them still call me. And uh, so you, you get the old and the new perspective. Um, I also, uh, I've been in 56 countries in the last five years. 
uh, I've been in almost and involved in almost every commodity market, whether it's uh, uh, hedging for the Indian uh, uh, wheat purchases for against the monsoon, um, uh, coffee hedging in South America. So uh, a, a lot of things, and you know, when you have uh, when you have the largest daily uh, uh, circulation of uh, daily commentary in the world, uh, you're tested every day. I mean, if you put something in there that doesn't make rational sense or is incorrect, uh, you're going to hear about it. Um, so I also have uh, eight guys working for me that we've all been together in excess of 30 years. So, um, yeah, so, I mean, we've, uh, we've got a niche, and um, I was fortunate to have a lot of people uh, give me their knowledge, uh, and then I've changed it into the real modern type of uh, faster information environment. All right. Well, um, one of the things that I know that you've said time and time again in interviews that I've heard or read about is that China um, is not an indiscriminate buyer. Uh, that for the most part, uh, China will buy when the price is right. I, I think, you know, like the television program, you've said that many times um, that China buys when they think there's um, a good price point rather than just chasing it at whatever the highs might be, they might actually um, step back and, and not be as nearly aggressive, even though, of course, there's an almost insatiable demand um, within their country anyway for protein. Um, so when, when you're saying that, and you've been boots on the ground in China, um, do you think there's a price point not too far from this 950-ish level that China basically backs off as far as some of the, whether that's soybeans, David, or whether it's other, you know, whether it's U.S. grains that are being exported to China? Do you think there's a price point at which, you know, whether it's corn or soybeans that they step back and they say no mas? Absolutely, but, but uh, they also have a they have a mandate, um, and you know, I, I trained some of the uh, large soybean traders in the PRC uh, whenever they were still handling it all in the government level, and then they went into the 50% ownership with a lot of these grain trading companies. And then since then, they've, uh, they've put out an additional mandate, um, and that is that they're going to hold a certain amount of buffer stocks to protect themselves and the, you know, the pandemic thing uh, brought up that more to the forefront. You've, you've got to make sure that what happens in China, the biggest threat to, to what? Losing power is not having food, you know? They're yeah. not going to lose an election. And so uh, unrest has got to be uh, handled with a steady supply of food. So now they have these buffer stocks and they go into a liquidation and a rebuilding. And, you know, like right now, they may have finished rebuilding their strategic supply of oil. Um, and now you may see that back off a little bit. But, but another very important factor is, is what's the value of the currency? You know, uh, they, they, uh, they decide make or buy. They decide, should we make ethanol on the ground or should we buy it? Should we uh, grow pork and beef or should we buy it? And so they have these uh, they have these numbers, but now they have a mandate, and they're still rebuilding their hog herd. Um, and so, you know, I saw the other day that you that some of the uh, gasoline consumption, uh, the only place in the world that's above year go levels is in China. Uh, car sales uh, running above year go levels. So 
they went through a huge contraction in their protein market and they're still trying to catch up. So that, that, that halt in buying, that no moss, it, it could be a little bit higher than, than what it would ordinarily be. Now, you guys, you, you just mentioned some energy, but before I get to energy, I wanted to ask you about some of these uh, things that you provide for customers that are looking for some sort of hedging uh, and or, you know, uh, they want to consult with you. They want you to be their advisor for some of these products, you know. Uh, so I imagine that you do a fair amount in derivatives as well, which is what we do. My brother and I are almost exclusively, yes, we trade stocks, just like you trade futures, David, but we trade an awful lot of derivatives. It's probably nine to one derivatives against stock. Um, when, when you're out there and somebody's seeking, whether it's a, you know, a grain elevator or whether it's a group of farmers that have got together and they're saying, you know, how can I cut down on my margin calls or um, what kind of hedge can I have against either volatility or against price movement? You guys provide services like that. I, from what I've read, right. um, what sort of uh, uh, advice would you be giving right now, given volatilities in the grains in particular, the, that side of the market? I'll get to energy right. and other things in a minute, but I was interested in, you know, corn, soybean, sure. wheat, that kind of stuff. Well, after I get done with this uh, taping, I have a uh, weekly call with an ethanol producer. And uh, I'm also very, uh, I, th I think that a hedger, when you convene a meeting, you need to check your opinion at the door. Um, and instead, you need to utilize strategy. And I'm a huge advocate of uh, using options. And, you know, they give you a definition of risk. They allow you to maybe leverage in the direction of your risk. Um, and, and you also, you know, you know uh, wild things happen in the market. We are uh, from boom and bust at any given time. So I, I like to use leveraged options in the direction of where their price risk is um, and, and try and avoid uh, trying to time, trying to know what you think is a fair value. And I'm a big advocate of a longer term hedge for buyers of commodities uh, instead of going in on a month in, month out basis. I like to set a macroeconomic trap uh, and catch a whole cycle of production and consumption in a particular commodity market. You know, in the grain markets, you've got uh, the critical growing times in July and August and, and frost periods and USDA numbers. And so, you know, I, I, I have a lot of uh, long call options, <laughs> uh, multiple call options that I may uh, protect that premium with short futures. Um, so I'm actually trying to give them leverage in their direction, but I'm also trying to get the money to pay for some of that hedging. Because if you pay, 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 uh, and have a premium expire, you basically raise your costs anyway. So, um, you know, I try to keep opinion out of the hedging. Um, and the only reason I use it is to try and determine what kind of personality of the, do I need a leveraged hedge? Are gains gonna be so small in soybeans that my best hedge is to be long futures and protect that with a put? Um, and what I've learned in 36 years is uh, that you have to have a, a strategy that you can survive the worst and the best case scenario. You have to have a strategy that uh, you don't get smoked out in the middle of uh, volatility. Uh, so if you're not comfortable with what hedge you have on, it's the wrong hedge. So 
that that's my that's my lie. And I don't I don't like to put on hedges in July and August in the midst of volatility in the growing season. Um, again, I like that uh, longer term positioning. Gotcha. Now, what would you say the mix is for people that are seeking that kind of uh, consultancy from you guys? Would you say that it's producers? which I'll say, you know, farmers are producers. So they're worried about, you know, getting the crop into the ground, getting the crop growing, like you say, that growing season, as well as the frost and all anything else that could affect it, a really wet time when they need to get the crop out of the ground um, and makes it much more difficult. Would you say that it's mainly producers or is it the end users, the, the Cargills, the Kellogg's, the, you know, the bit without naming your who your right. clients are, is it a mix of almost 50-50 of those two, or is it really slanted heavy on the farmer side and a couple of those really big um, users of those products? Well, I'd say it's uh, very well diversified, almost in even numbers. You know, I've uh, I've been a consultant to uh, ADM uh, for over 30 years, and so I do a lot of uh, presentations to some of their large clients. Um, a lot of annual meetings, annual outlook meetings. Um, and, you know, I, I, I try to, and sometimes my head services amount to just looking over the shoulder at the guys in house uh, that are making hedging decisions. So the C, CEO can turn to me and say, uh, is there anything that could blow up in what they're doing? Uh, because, you know, you have a lot of traders that get stuck and won't give up on a loser and then have a major problem. So I'm kind of like a uh, third party independent uh, monitor. Uh, and, you know, I'll, I'll offer up my specific strategy. And uh, sometimes they'll take it uh, directly in house and sometimes they'll modify it. Now, uh, one of the inputs uh, and one of the things dependent a lot on prices of corn and things are cattle. Obviously, at Hightower, you guys, one of the things that you cover is uh, cattle. Um, and so what can you tell us? I mean, obviously, during the pandemic, David, there was a lot of uh, discussion about some of the essential workers, the people that were going into um, those uh, meat facilities or poultry or whatever. Um, and they were uh, uh, on the front line, so to speak. Uh, and a lot of folks were saying we could see a spike in prices here because we don't have nearly enough folks um, going into and working in those uh, slaughterhouses and so forth and meat processors, mainly because uh, uh, they were getting paid more to stay home than they would be making if they were to go in there. What can you tell us about your outlook for cattle here? Well, I mean, they have, uh, you know, if there's one thing American business is, it's uh, innovative and flexible. And uh, while, like uh, Winston Churchill said, you can always count on the Americans to do the right thing after they've run out of doing the wrong thing. Um, and they learned. And now they're going to have distancing. They've implemented uh, uh, production barriers and so forth. So it was a short-term thing that really aggravated uh, the demand setback. Because, I mean, if you can't get the beef, it's if you don't eat a steak today, you don't eat three tomorrow. Um, and so that that would created a kind of a backlog. You didn't have the supply, but you also cut into demand. And you know what? Beef is a cyclical prosperity 
the item. And so uh, globally, it's getting more traction. I mean, some of the places I've been to Southeast Asia, uh, 15 years ago, you didn't see any beef. And now, and now you're seeing that quite a bit. So uh, as the economy comes back, I wouldn't be surprised uh, to see a, a significant surge in, in beef and cattle prices. Yeah. Um, I mean, when I'm looking here at that, some of those April lows, it was pushing down, at least I'm looking at feeder cattle here. I'm not sure which one um, that you'd be most, uh, you obviously have to follow them all, but right, I'm right. looking at it pushing down to 113 and stuff like that uh, back in April and then hitting a high just in mid-August of maybe 150 plus. That's a pretty big swing, right? Exactly. Um, you know, and the, and the beef market's a little slower to adapt, uh, you know, it has a longer cycle of production. Uh, it's also a more expensive item and it's not as culturally, um, you know, everything's Asia, <laughs> you know, uh, China's important, but Southeast Asia has 900 million people. Um, and so the, and the average age there is very low. And so what those diets are transforming into uh, more pork first and then maybe uh, beef in the end. So I, I actually find uh, the pork market to be much more attractive because we uh, China is going to have to go a long time building back what it had in its herd and having that strategic supply. And another major thing that happened with this pandemic is China was primarily a fresh meat consumer. And now we've changed the consumer styles over there to where they will eat frozen. So that kind of opens up the, uh, the our export market to their to their demand. Yeah, well, clearly um, there's there's been a uh, 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 when when China has had several of these issues, um, it has impacted uh, their ability to uh, get enough of that protein in particular to their people, which you would think uh, bodes well for our farmers and ranchers and things like that. Um, let's switch gears just a little bit maybe and talk about uh, what's going on in energy. I mean, we've seen that nice rebound, um, but the demand uh, is still not anywhere near where it was prior to February. Um, and that's for a whole host of reasons. We know it's COVID related, but when you're not putting all those uh, international flights, domestic flights, um, cruise lines that run on diesel almost exclusively those, right. you know, they're running on fuel oil and more or less diesel sorts of situations. Um, what about, uh, uh, first I wanna ask you about oil and then I wanna ask you about gas because I've got a reason for that. All right, well, you know, in the crude oil market, we, uh, the rig operating count, I mean, the markets are doing their job. Do the markets overdo their job? Yes. Does it take a while for uh, fundamentals to come back in line? Yes. Uh, but we saw the lowest rig operating count since 2005 uh, in the second week of August. You know, there's this delayed reaction. It takes about 12 months after you begin to precipitously pull down uh, the amount of uh, production that you're getting by halting the rigs. Okay, it filters through the system. You bring in the rigs you drilled, and then all of a sudden you run out of that. So we're at that point already. Um, and so after adding 1.8 to 2 million barrels of the shale and all these other miracles, uh, we pulled out 1.8 million barrels. Okay, so the miracle that caused the oversupply in the world, um, we pulled it back. 
and it's not from a commitment from OPEC plus that they voluntarily cut back production. It's real money. If you can't make money on it, you close it down. Uh, you will open some of that back up. Uh, but what we did is we went a long way toward uh, keeping down the surplus backup that we had from the shutdown. And I think you, uh, somebody on CNBC, and by the way, I've, you know, for 36 years, I've watched this. And, you know, CNBC uh, d does a heck of a job uh, in, in the people they have on. And I heard someone say earlier this week that there's been 890 million miles driven lost uh, because of the inability to go to work. Um, and so, you know, we had a huge uh, demand hit, but we've also lowered supply at the same time. Um, and some of it's voluntarily and others of it is not. Um, and so um, I, I'm, I'm upbeat that we made it through this crisis and did not, uh, did not just put a multi-year bear market into place. But you're right, the uh, products are a different story. Well, so um, let me hit that uh, natural gas because uh, various types of natural gas, I think are gonna be in high demand in particular for cities like New York. And in this case, David, I'm not thinking so much in terms of, uh, um, uh, you know, instant power, um, you know, because obviously natural gas has been a clean and very quick way to get power plants um, to generate power when people need it. Um, but I'm thinking more of along the lines of in New York, they still have a very limited amount of restaurants that uh, are letting anybody in. A lot of them are closed, of course, and may never come back. But the ones that are surviving are doing takeout heavy, and they're doing, uh, they've been helped uh, in the summer at least by being able to have people on the street. You know, uh, as, as unattractive as it seems to me, somebody that works in New York a lot, I know I don't wanna be eating on the street a lot, um, because there's just a whole host of bad things that, that are lurking out there on the street. I mean, it's, it's not necessarily dangerous per se, David, but it's, it's also not nearly the same experience when you're sitting, you know, out there on a street with, uh, you know, the waiters and waitresses wearing masks and you're wearing masks and you're, you know, getting your food out there on the street. It's not that same experience as the white tablecloth in the restaurant and so forth. So when they try to survive this and the weather gets cooler, I think we're going to be seeing those, you know, stands, they'll be ubiquitous in New York. Um, whether it's bars or restaurants, uh, they'll be trying to social distance, of course, as best they can, but they'll be uh, basically having those heat lamps um, that are generated by LP gas. You know, that's right. that little tank of gas that we put on our barbecues and so forth. But you multiply that by all of the folks that are going to be experiencing that from uh, Oregon, Washington, Minnesota, um, Ohio, New York, Pennsylvania, all the northern cities and states where they're going to try to still provide some sort of help for those restaurants and let people eat outside, I think that's going to put a demand again on natural gas. I mean, the June low was about a buck seventy for the nat gas futures over at the CME, and it went a full dollar higher than that just in 
you know, basically right. two months, right? Right. And, and you know, what you're talking about, it, it uh, really smooths out or eliminates the shoulder season. So you have heavy cooling demand, then you go into a pause in the fall because you're not running the, the uh, air conditioner and it's not uh, cold enough yet for the heat. Um, and so if you have that transition in the fall to where people are trying to do that, that's going to that's gonna create demand. The other major thing that's been happening in the background, and we, you know, we had a pipeline uh, that was uh, destroyed temporarily in the Gulf, um, but uh, over the last 10 years, we've begun to construct a lot of these uh, export terminals. We, I think uh, eight years ago, we had none. Uh, then we had several. And then uh, three years ago, we had 35 uh, that were uh, seeking approval from the EPA. And, and so, these are those LNG that like LNG. And so we take, the we take the natural gas, process it into LNG, and then ship it out. Um, and again, uh, China has been showing that interest in that. Um, the dollar's low, so we got a very low BTU cost in dollars for natural gas. But I think more importantly is, I mean, you're seeing these sovereign bonds and European banks that are saying, we're not going to do financing for dirty fuel. And while natural gas is not completely clean, it's a middle step. I mean, you just can't go to green fuel tomorrow, uh, even though <laughs> there are political factions that think you can do that overnight. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's, it's less polluting, and uh, the, a lot of the world is going to go to that instead of, uh, and, you know, if you just eradicate coal, the biggest problem for natural gas has been that coal is so cheap that they, no one could even afford to do it. Um, and boy, you know, in, um, in Mongolia and uh, uh, Beijing, I've seen, uh, uh, one time in Beijing, it was so bad that when I walked out of the hotel, I walked back in and I said, uh, I will not be taking off today uh, because of the uh, fog. <laughs> the person at the front desk said, it's not fog, it's pollution. And you could walk into someone as you're walking down the street. And so, you know, they'll have 300 million people with lung disease probably show up in the next couple of years. Uh, and so they're forced, they got to really go fast when it comes to LNG. Um. One of so, my last questions, so John. This is a this is a very cheap area for natural gas. I mean, oh, this yeah. is a, a, a disclaimer. I have a lot of natural gas in my pension, so um, it, you know it, it's a cheap energy source and it's halfway clean. How's that? Yep. Um, what about the uh, you you mentioned? You know that there was a pipeline that was impacted. Maybe one of the reasons was uh, Hurricane Laura. Um, Marco hit first and then Laura. Right. Um, if you could give the listeners like a little uh, um, quick update on how long things shut down when those hurricanes are coming, especially when you've got two of them back to back, just two days apart. Obviously, they had to get people off the rigs in, that were in harm's way. Um, and then how long does it take to get both those people back out there so you get the production backup, and then the production and uh, transmission from those uh, uh, oil refineries and so forth. Knocking it out for what, two, three weeks, or is it a lot less than that? Yeah, I think it's a lot less than that, particularly in this case, because the uh, uh, Laura uh, did not really uh, build speed uh, until it was closer to shore. And so if you look at the location of these rigs and the platforms, 
it, you know, it, it, when it came through the, some of the fields, uh, it wasn't that strong. And, uh, you know, they've, again, like the, the meat processing people, they've learned and they've hardened these shelters. And in this case, um, you know, it was an offshore uh, pipeline uh, that got damaged. And, and, uh, but, but we are now building these uh, significantly underground. I'm sure they're going to, but I think uh, some, of the, uh, some of the facilities are going to be back up by September 11th. So, um, it, it, you know, it, it's not as long as it used to be. I mean, you have to have a major infrastructure and there's so many different platforms. Uh, once the weather's cleared and the winds are down, they, they uh, helicopter these people right back out there. And if there's no damage to repair, uh, they, they turn it on pretty quick. Well, I mean, I think we've covered just about everything. I've just got one topic left and that's one that uh, is near and dear to my brothers and my heart. Um, and that is the precious metals. Ah, good. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up. Energy is great, uh, and I love to talk about that, but man, the metals, anybody that's had metal in their account, David, and anybody that's been following David on the Hightower Report, folks, uh, knows what he thinks of it, but if you're new to it, I wanted you to hear it from David himself. What's your outlook here after this monster run for silver and gold? Well, I don't want to come off as a tin hat guy, um, but I think uh, that the first time since 1980, uh, we have a uh, uh, honest to goodness, uh, classic physical commodity market rally brewing in gold and silver, okay? I'm not denying the uh, prospect that a November election brings the largest amount of uncertainty maybe since 1776. Uh, threatening capitalism, lower dollar. Uh, maybe uh, we're probably, if, uh, if the Democrats don't sweep, you can expect gridlock to go for another four years. And so there's a lot of those safe haven things, lower currency, um, and, you know, the world's diversifying. And right now they're saying, you know, the U.S. used to be the reserve currency. They were safe. We knew what was going on. But I got to tell you, the flight from the dollar is uh, maybe that's because people uh, don't see that as a, a certain or definable any longer. And when you have a Federal Reserve that comes out and says, look, um, we're going to hold rates down for longer than we need to. Um, I mean, they said we want full employment and we want inclusion in uh, employment. So we're, we're, we're raising the bar on the tolerance of the Fed for inflation. So we're setting up the first classic economic textbook type of inflationary potential. But to me, that's not the issue. The issue is the classic supply and demand. We've had uh, the first decline in production last year after 12 years of expansion, okay? So it's not necessarily a production issue, but what comes down is this ETF inflow. I mean, if you extrapolate the first six months of the year inflows to gold, and you know, it, it's like unlikely that it'll continue at that pace all the way into the end of the year. But if it did, that would be the net equivalent addition to demand of uh, 1,300 tons. Okay, let's put that in perspective. China is a 900 tons of demand annually. Uh, India's 800 tons of demand annually. Have those uh, demand levels fallen off? Absolutely. India completely shut off for several months of imports. And now we've had the first resumption of imports into India. So if you say, okay, maybe they peeled off 400 tons each, 
So maybe the world demand equation lost, you know, 800 tons of gold. Uh, but we still might have a thousand or thirteen hundred in fresh demand that we've never had before. So if you if you find out that look we're going to have a tight situation, um, and you, and you do see any wild uncertainty out of the election, um, and and I also believe that the nagging unending inf infection headwind. I mean we've got the longest headwind of anyone in the world right now. So undoubtedly our rates are going to remain lower longer than everywhere else. So the Fed's opened itself up. So I, I see a two-pronged thing, um, you know. And, and you, you've been around long enough that, the, that once a market gets hot and once it starts to get following in the press, the investment's going to flow. And when the small guy is really throwing his money into it, then then maybe we're getting to the end of the uh, end of the rainbow. But uh, boy, um, I, I really don't even like to give projections on gold because people think you're uh, people think you're nuts. Uh, but Warren, Warren Buffett, you know, he's he got into the gold mining sector. Uh, a, a lot of fund managers are doing the same. And uh, India and China people are going to be back. I mean, we, we saw the biggest import in four months in India. So uh, I don't know. It's, it's, a, uh, it, it's a very interesting market, which I think on, on pullbacks in the market, you need to be a buyer. $1,900 is value. Uh, $27 is value in silver. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of people say uh, maybe silver's the better horse uh, for the second half of the race. Um, you know, I mean, it's, uh, not, it's just barely above half of what the record high is. So, um, yeah, I'm, uh, I, I'm a classic fundamental commodity guy, but I, but I could see both pistons fired on the, on the gold rally. Cool. Well, David, I can't thank you enough, sir. Folks, uh, we've been uh, having a conversation on compound interests with David Hightower, the guy whose name is on the door, and it's HightowerReport.com is how you can go uh, on the internet, research what his subscriptions are, get a free trial. I'd encourage you to check out the work that David and his team do. David, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Good luck. Stay safe. All right, you too, man. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.